0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Bank of America. What would you like the power to do?
1: On October 21st, Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang sat down with the Washington Post Live to discuss his upstart presidential campaign that began as a long shot, but now has everyone in politics paying close attention. Yang explained his controversial Freedom Dividend Plan, which would give $1,000 a month to every American over the age of 18. He also talked about the dangers of the Fourth Industrial Revolution and his strategy for winning the Democratic nomination. Let's listen. Mr. Yang, it's an interview. (laughs) Thank you, team. (laughs) We're adding that time on to the end. Thanks for joining us. Well, If, if the debates were like that, I'd spend all day out there. <laughs>
0: well, thanks so much for joining us here at The Washington Post, and thanks so much for being here in the room and online. We really appreciate it. We've enjoyed this 2020 candidate series to get in-depth with candidates, candidates who are making moves in the 2020 race. You just raised $10 million in the third quarter. Yes, People across the country gang. are starting to pay attention to your campaign in a new way. What is your path at this moment to the nomination?
1: Well, we went from 2.8 million in Q2 to 10 million in Q3, which I dare say stunned the political establishment. And our numbers show that our growth is just continuing to take off. That $10 million we got, the average donation was only $30. So our fans are even cheaper than Bernie's. (laughs) But there are a lot of them. And that number is growing all the time. So we surprised the political world in Q3. Q4 is going to be another high watermark. And we're growing and growing in the early states. I'm going from here to New Hampshire tomorrow, where what used to be a group of, frankly, maybe uh, 10 or 20 voters in these early states, now it's hundreds. We've had standing room only crowds in early state venues, and we've even had to turn people away. Uh, So the growth that we saw in Q3 is just continuing, Bob, and is just going to continue until the voting starts in February.
0: Out of the opening four states, is New Hampshire the most critical because of the primary system there, the open system?
1: We're going to do well in all four states. uh, But I enjoy heading back to New Hampshire all the time. I went to high school there. uh, Not intentionally. I certainly wasn't planning on running for president. I was like 14 or 15. Yeah, I went to Exeter. (laughs) Uh, But I think we're going to do very well in New Hampshire, in part because it's an open primary. Republicans, uh, independents can participate.
0: You have momentum but let's say you don't win the Democratic nomination. Do you pledge to support the Democratic nominee?
1: Yes, I would never do anything that would increase the chance of Donald Trump becoming president. The goal is to beat that man, get him out of the Oval (laughs) Office. (laughs) I genuinely believe I'm the strongest candidate to defeat Donald Trump in the general election. I'm one of only two candidates in the field that 10% or more of Donald Trump voters say they would support in the general, which means if I'm the Democratic nominee, we win. But if I'm not the nominee, um, I will 100% support whoever the nominee is. So you're ruling out
0: entirely as well, an independent run or a third party run?
1: Yes, I'm ruling them out.
0: When you think about your campaign right now, you're still an outsider, you're anti-establishment. What's your case to voters who are wary of you not having government experience?
1: Well, the tough truth, Bob, is that Donald Trump became president because of problems that have been building up over years. Uh, and. Uh, If most Americans thought that someone with decades of government experience would solve the problem, then we would not be where we are right now. And that's not just Donald Trump. If you look back over the recent past, America's been hungering for some kind of change agent to respond uh, to what's going on in our communities for years. You can see it with uh, not just Trump's victory, but Bernie Sanders' outside success in the last election with Barack Obama's victory. Uh, We've been aware of the fact that our government is decades behind the curve for a while now, and it's reaching catastrophic levels.
0: Do you believe we live in a populist time and that Democrats should rally behind a change agent in their primary process?
1: I think that we need a candidate that's actually going to solve the problems on the ground that Americans are experiencing every day in our communities, Uh, and however you choose to define that. Um, I believe that should be the mission. I've been blown away when I go to communities around the country where some people think Democrats don't speak for them. And I'm talking about truckers and warehouse shelvers and pe- union workers, people that I thought the Democratic Party was hand in hand with. Uh, when I was growing up, I thought of the Democratic Party as a champion of the working man, uh, the little guy or gal. But then when I go to these communities, a lot of them say the Democrats are not speaking to them. And that's one of the, um, the reasons I think my campaigns been so successful as they feel like I am speaking to the problems they see.
0: What's that campaign actually been like? What was it like for you at that first debate surrounded by lifelong politicians? Were you nervous? Was, has it been a tough transition to go from the private sector to this kind of spotlight?
1: Well, I, I was joking that um, the debates got easier when I realized it wasn't really a debate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and after that, it got a lot easier. Um, so. Uh, So that probably took a little bit of adjustment, uh, I would say. But I'm a very fast learner. Uh, And we raised over a million dollars after each of the last two debates, uh, almost entirely from new donors. So whatever we're doing on the debate stage is working.
0: Some Asian Americans have criticized you about the way you talk about math and how Asians know many doctors. What's your response to that criticism?
1: Uh, I think people can tell the spirit (laughs) of When I use that kind of humor, and I think Americans are very, very smart, where if I make a joke that, you know, I'm an Asian guy that likes math, they don't think, like, oh, all Asians like math. Like, I don't think that's the way it works in in people's minds. Uh, I think, if anything, by bringing these stereotypes into the light and poking fun at them, you're actually. uh, dispelling them and making them weaker. Uh, I know that the Asian community is very very diverse And I would certainly never suggest that my experience or anyone's experience speaks for everyone in a community of literally millions
0: Do you believe that could be dangerous territory if you brought other stereotypes into the fore, into the public discussion at all whether it's About Asian Americans or other groups
1: uh, I'm very proud to be the first Asian American man to run for president as a Democrat when I talked to Canada, uh uh, Asian-Americans, APIs around the country, they seem excited as well. I, I would never do anything to intentionally undermine either that community or any community, really. You've gotten a lot of support from disaffected men online.
0: You have a very positive message in the terms of universal basic income, your freedom dividend. But how have you grappled with this kind of online support from that group?
1: It's interesting you, you asked that, Bob. Uh, to me... If you look at what's going on in our economy, we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Missouri, Iowa, and about 2 thirds of those jobs were filled by men prior. About 2 thirds of manufacturing workers uh, are men. And our economy is evolving in ways that are pushing more and more Americans to the sidelines, but uh, the group that's getting particularly hard hit are men without college degrees. Um, If you're a non-college educated man in the U.S., you have a lower than 50-50 chance now of ever getting married, as one example. Uh, And if you look at what's happening in automation, 94% of American truck drivers are men. Um, And men deal with idleness very poorly by the numbers. If you're an unemployed man, your uh, your volunteering rates are actually lower than an employed man. Think about that. You have more time, but you you volunteer less. Uh, And if you look at idle men, rates of alcohol and drug abuse uh, go up, and then various social ills and even physical ills and health problems follow. Uh, Women, not a shocker. Women do not go through the same process uh, if uh, you're not working, in part because women, it turns out, are never truly idle. (laughs) Um, That's true. (laughs) And, And this is not Andrew Yang talking. This is just numbers and data. Um, So when you say to me, hey, there are a lot of people uh, who happen to be men um, who seem to be supporting my campaign, um, I think it's strange that I'm one of the first people to point out what's going on in our economy that's affecting all Americans, but it's affecting certain groups in very specific ways.
0: Why do you think the freedom dividend, which if you don't know is $1,000 a month to every American, would benefit people more than other options that are on the Democratic slate, such as Medicare for All?
1: I would ask anyone watching this around the country, what would you prefer, $1,000 a month in your pocket or any of a range of other suggestions? And to be clear, I'm for uh, Medicare for All, though I would not get rid of all uh, private insurance. I think we need to face facts of the fact 94% of the new jobs that are getting created are temp, gig, or contract jobs that don't have health care benefits. And so tying health care to employment makes less and less sense. Um, But the fact is, a lot of the solutions that politicians have been offering um, will not improve people's lives nearly as much as $1,000 a month. Because if you get $1,000 a month, you will do any of a range of things with it. Um, But you know how to solve your own problems the best. I've been giving families around the country $1,000 a month for months now. It's a lot of fun. I recommend it if anyone wants to. uh... Uh, But one of the recipients is a guy named Kyle Christensen, who lives in Iowa Falls with his mom, who's recovering from cancer. And I saw Colin on one of my last trips to Iowa, and he seemed like a different man. He's, he was beaming. And he said he'd use some of the money to buy a new guitar for himself. He was playing shows for the first time in years. And he was so proud as he was telling me this. Now, what government program would have ever put Kyle in position to buy himself a guitar? For him, it was a guitar. For Jody Fassi in New Hampshire, it was car repairs. Uh, for Mallory Shannon in Florida was going back to school. But we Americans know how best to uh, solve our own problems, and $1,000 a month would help us all move forward. If your goal
0: is to put more money in people's hands, why not just raise the minimum wage?
1: Well, raising the minimum wage doesn't actually affect some of the underlying trends in our labor force where we're getting rid of a lot of the most common jobs in our economy. It also doesn't help people like my wife, who's at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic. If I say, hey, guess what? The minimum wage goes up. The 10 million stay-at-home moms in this country would be untouched by that. Uh, the reality is we're reaching a point where if I come up with software that can replace a call center worker who's making $14 an hour, um, changing the minimum wage will do nothing to actually keep that person bringing home a paycheck that can support their family. Because whether they're getting paid 10, 12, 14, or $15 an hour, if the software can do it, Uh, at essentially zero marginal cost, you're going to see those jobs start to disappear. And I know this in part because I I spoke to a group of 70 CEOs in New York City uh, not that long ago, and I asked them how many of them are looking at replacing their back office clerical workers with artificial intelligence and software. And guess how many hands went up out of 70? All 70. Uh, And so if we're looking to get money into Americans' hands, the most efficient way to do so is just to put money into Americans' hands, which is what I'm suggesting we do.
0: You mentioned someone who bought a
1: guitar with $1,000. Well, it wasn't a $1,000 guitar, to be clear. Right. He did, he did other things first, and then there was some money. Let's, and then he but, just, but let's say know. that
0: gentleman was already on the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program, or the SNAP program, and getting $1,000 or $1,200 in federal benefits today. If your program was instituted, what, would that person get $1,000 in addition to the current 1000 or $1,200 they are getting from the federal government or not?
1: The last thing I would ever do is take anything away from Americans, particularly if people are relying upon government programs for their basic needs. So the freedom dividend would be universal and opt-in. But if you do opt-in, then you're choosing to forego cash and cash-like benefits from certain other programs. So you wouldn't would receive include...
0: SNAP anymore?
1: Well, in the, in the uh, hypothetical you're, you're describing, the person would look up and say, I prefer $1,200 in my current benefits. Uh, to $1,000 on are those the people that maybe. may need
0: $1,000 more than anyone in addition to their current benefits?
1: Well, again, we don't want to do away with any programs. The goal is to set a floor, a foundation for all Americans, and then continue to solve problems on top of that.
0: But why not give the person who's already on federal benefits $1,000 in addition than giving $1,000 to a billionaire?
1: Well, first, in my system, a billionaire, like the, you know, like the CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos... <laughs> We'd be extracting literally hundreds of millions, or maybe billions, from the Jeff Bezos of of the world. So if we try and send him a thousand bucks a month to remind him he's an American, uh, it's probably a win. (laughs) You know, and then he probably would forego the thousand or donate to charity or something. Um, For the person who's who's struggling, we need to do more, 100%. And keep in mind, the thousand dollars a month is on a per adult basis. So if you have two adults in your household, that's twenty four thousand dollars a year. How many of you all are parents, like I am? Imagine knowing that your child is going to get $1,000 a month starting at age 18, which is a huge stressor for so many families, Uh, and then knowing they get $1,000 a month, then all of a sudden their college is partially paid for, their future is more assured. Like, everything becomes much Uh, less stressful and easier. So if someone's, uh, the freedom dividend is not intended to solve everyone's problems all at once. It's uh, intended to provide a floor that we can all be excited about. But I'm just
0: trying to understand why does someone who's perhaps the poorest of the poor, who's already on federal benefits, have to choose between the federal benefit and the freedom dividend? Why do they have to make that choice if you're president of the United States?
1: Well, part of it is that a lot of the existing programs unfortunately penalize you the better you do. Uh, And so uh, one example is that a friend of mine, his sister, was on disability. And she wanted to volunteer for a local nonprofit. But she was afraid to do so because she was afraid she would be identified as being non-disabled and then lose her disability benefits. Uh, And so she chose not to volunteer. Now, I think we can all agree she should be able to volunteer. And if she can volunteer one, two days a week, um, she should be able to do that and retain her disability benefits. The reason why the Freedom Dividend um, to me is better is that you can keep it on top of whatever else you do, but there are many, many Americans who are receiving well in excess of $1,000, very appropriately so, because their needs are higher.
0: To keep this sustainable, if it was ever implemented, would you support taxing assets in the future at a high level of people who are very wealthy to sustain this kind of thing?
1: Well, we're in the midst of the greatest winner-take-all economy in the history of the world. And when I say greatest, I don't mean best. I mean most extreme. (laughs) the Most extreme winner-take-all economy in the history of the world. And we need to find ways to effectively rebalance that. So I am not uh, conceptually against a wealth tax or an asset tax or or various things. But I consider myself a very fact-driven and data-driven person, and that if something like a wealth tax was tried, in a host of other countries that are very sophisticated, like Germany and France and Denmark and Sweden, Uh, and they repealed it because they had massive implementation problems and compliance problems and it didn't generate as much revenue as they thought it it would, Um, then I take that experience as very instructive, and I certainly don't want to walk us down a road that other countries have walked down and learned hard lessons from.
0: So you're not ready to support an asset tax?
1: Uh, I wouldn't rule it out, but it's not, to me, the first and best choice. Uh, We have to look at at what has worked in other countries around the world. And Sweden, Denmark, Germany, France all have a value-added tax, along with Canada and like most every other developed country. And what that does is that gives us a, a slice of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad, every robot truck mile, generates hundreds of billions in new revenue in a very sustainable way. And when you're projecting not that far into the future... The savings from automating truck driving are estimated to be $168 billion a year. How much of that will we receive right now in our current system? Zero or next to zero? Because it's going to flow to the bottom line of companies like Amazon that literally pay zero in taxes. But if you have a value added tax, then we get a toll for every robot truck mile. So of that $168 billion, we get our fair share. That's tens of billions of dollars. And you play that out over many of the other innovations that are happening in the 21st century. There's a joke that uh, people told, it's like, why did you rob the bank? Because that's where the money was. The same is true for us now. We have to go where the money is. And the trap we're falling into, there are a couple of traps. One, that we somehow don't have the money, which is ridiculous. We're the richest, most advanced economy in the history of the world, up to $20 trillion in GDP, up $5 trillion in the last 12 years. We can pay for just about anything under the sun, as evidenced by the fact that, do you all remember voting for the $4 trillion bailout of Wall Street? Do you remember anyone complaining about where the money was going to come from? No. But you know, when it was crunch time, it was $4 trillion for the banks. So where's, your, where's the money coming from? A value-added tax? Is that it? So a value-added tax generates hundreds of billions in new revenue and is going to go up and up as our economy becomes more sophisticated if we have the right mechanism in place. But here are some of the, the great uh, secondary effects. If we put $1,000 a month in the hands of the average American citizen, 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, almost half can't afford an unexpected $400 or $500 bill. So what's going to happen to the money when we put it into their hands, our hands? It's going to get spent. It's going to get spent in communities every single day on car repairs and daycare and little league sign-ups and local nonprofits and arts and creativity and Why caretaking. Why do you resist
0: talking so much about tax increases on income?
1: Oh, so, so this is the great part. So after you put that money into the economy, it grows a consumer economy by approximately 10%. And we generate hundreds of billions in new revenue because of all the economic activity. Uh, So that's another source of revenue, essentially, because we get the money back. Number three, we save billions on things like incarceration, homelessness services, emergency room health care that we spend hundreds of billions on right now. A corrections officer in New Hampshire said to me, we should pay people to stay out of jail because it costs so much when we send them to jail. This is a corrections officer talking, not exactly someone you'd, you'd expect to hear this from. Though he was going to retire, so at this point, he was like, all right, I can, I can come clean. Um, so we can save billions there. And then another study showed that if you were to alleviate poverty in this country, we would increase our GDP by $700 billion just on the basis of better health and education outcomes. If you're a good company, you invest in your people all the time. Raise your hand if you've been through one of those week-long training programs that they send you to. Um, you learned something, you know, sure, there something against, there.
0: You say, you say people don't want to be retrained. You tell, talk about that a lot in the campaign drill. Yeah, it's true. What about... Train professionals, teachers who teach people new skills. Why not put this money into the education system instead of every citizen's hand?
1: Well, that's the, the great part about this: is that if you put it into our hands, then to the extent that there are educational offerings that make sense, they're going to materialize overnight. But they're going to materialize because we, as uh, the shareholders of the economy, decide to put our money to work, not because the government decides to institute a top-down jobs training program that oftentimes would not work. And we know this because of what happened to the manufacturing workers in the Midwest. When I dug into what happened here, let's say that I'm a government program. I'm like, okay, I got to retrain these thousands of manufacturing workers. Let's say there's not even an appropriate school in the area, which is sometimes the case. You know what happens? Some fly-by-night school opens the next day and is like, give me your money, government. Um, I will retrain everyone. And then that fly-by-night school gives everyone a certificate and then closes as soon as the retraining's done. If I'm the government official, I check the box and say, hey, everyone was retrained. If I'm the school, I no longer exist, but my shareholders have money. And you know who suffers? All the people who now have a valueless certificate. That's how you wind up with a population.
0: under a Yang presidency.
1: So the public school data, uh, and I'm a parent, so I feel this acutely. Uh, The data shows very clearly that two-thirds of our educational outcomes are due to out-of-school factors. So we're going to our teachers and saying, educate our kids, but they know that they can only control a third of the kid's outcome. So a few things we should do. One, we need to pay teachers more because a good teacher is worth his or her weight in gold. And that's not not a feel-good. That's just the data. (laughs) Second, we have to de-emphasize the SATs and standardized tests that at this point are Uh, crushing kids' hopes and dreams more than serving as any useful function. You all know that we invented the SAT during World War II to identify which kids not to send to the front lines. That's the genesis of the SAT. And now we treat every year like it's wartime. And our teachers are getting pushed into a point where they know they're doing something that's not right by the kids because they need to teach the test. So we need to get the tests off of our teachers' backs and let the teachers do their jobs. Uh, And then the third thing, back to my original point, Teachers know they can only control a third of the kids' educational outcomes. The other two-thirds are parental time, words read to the child, stress levels in the house, type of neighborhood, uh, type of home environment. And so if we put money directly into the parents' hands, that will actually help the kids be in better position to learn when they show up to school and give the teachers a better chance to do their jobs.
0: You have a very sunny pitch when you're on the campaign trail, but you often talk in dark terms about the future, should automation... I'm a very sunny
1: guy. You
0: are. You're a very sunny guy. But sometimes you paint a pretty grim picture. I've listened to a lot of your interviews. You talk about what happens when truckers lose their jobs... Yeah, in, what does happen. ...in a few years. And you've painted a picture, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, of mass, not only unemployment, but civil unrest in this country. Where do you think the possibility of violence and civil unrest is on the horizon?
1: Unfortunately, you don't have to look very far, and we all know this. Um, We all see that our communities are disintegrating. If you have 3.5 million truck drivers in this country, which you do have, and only 13% of them are unionized, and you start to decimate their jobs in significant numbers, expecting all of them just to take that well um, seems to be inconsistent with our own history. The first industrial revolution of the turn of the century gave us mass riots that killed dozens of Americans and caused billions of dollars worth of damage. That's why we have Labor Day today. We we inaugurated Labor Day because of those riots. We then instituted Universal High School in 1911, in part to try and help the population adjust. And this Industrial Revolution is projected to be two to three times faster and more dramatic than that one. So even based on our own history, you would expect massive social convulsions, including potentially violence. Uh, I wish I had better news to report, Um, But this is just our history So is it fair to say
0: you're arguing that if unless a universal basic income is implemented and people who are maybe losing their trucking jobs are Given some kind of money. There could be riots in the streets.
1: I believe 11 Uber and limo drivers killed themselves in New York um, over the last several years including a couple who killed themselves outside of City Hall uh, because they were protesting the fact that their medallions went from being a secure livelihood to less uh, to lessen subsistence over a period of time. And that is now, not speculative. That's actual documented fact. Um, now, did these drivers killing themselves outside of City Hall cause society-wide soul-searching into the fact we've created this punishing inhuman economy? No. Most of you didn't even know what happened. Uh, and so uh, expecting the next phase to be somehow violence-free strikes me as a little bit overly optimistic.
0: Is it overly optimistic to believe that $1,000 a month will somehow change that dynamic in a dramatic way? Or are there other factors out there that you may have to consider if you're elected president? Cultural factors, family
1: factors? To me, again, the freedom dividend is just a foundation or a floor. It doesn't solve the problems. It's not a magic bullet. It does get the boot off of people's throats. It does help reverse the mindset of scarcity that is tearing us apart. Right now, if Americans can't pay their bills, which 78% of us are struggling to do, studies have shown that that constrains your mental bandwidth and has the functional impact of decreasing your IQ by 13 points, or one standard deviation. So if anyone watching this has this feeling that America is getting less rational, less reasonable, less optimistic, less forward-looking, we are by the numbers, because that's what you'd expect if you were to introduce pervasive financial insecurity into a population. The Freedom Dividend helps reverse that mindset of scarcity with at least the beginning of a mindset of abundance, which will help us focus on climate change and other problems, but it does not solve everything. It will supercharge nonprofits and arts and cultural organizations, journalism, all of the things that we volunteer in our lives that uh, right now the market ignores we'll actually have a much better chance to flourish with a Freedom Dividend in place.
0: What about the aging crisis that could be on the horizon? A baby boom generation that's getting older, may not have enough in their savings account, living longer because of health care and new developments in medicine. Should there be a more, a more of a focus on the aging population rather than the
1: whole population in general? Well, the Freedom Dividend would stack on top of Social Security would be, uh, in essence, the greatest expansion of Social Security benefits in generations. And I agree with you 100% that we have a massive crisis on our hands because half of Americans will never retire. They'll never have the savings. And do you all want to live in a country where Americans are just working themselves to death until the day they die? When you go into a convenience store, it's going to be a senior citizen trying to make ends meet instead of a teenager working. Uh, for discretionary income. That is the economy we are in right now. And so if you believe that we have massive opportunities and a lot of work to do to try and help our seniors uh, stay healthy and strong and actually build uh, organizations around meeting those needs, then there need to be resources uh, around those Problems and the freedom dividend will help move us in that direction in a much more real way than anything else We can do for seniors.
0: You've talked a lot about giving people money But what about giving people rights to their data you come from that Silicon Valley world? How would you enable people to have more rights about the information about their lives and their data usage?
1: Uh, Yeah, I can't believe this isn't more of an issue in 2020 uh, Because how many of you saw the study that said that our data is now worth more than oil raise your hand Keep your hand up if you remember getting your data check in the mail Uh, None of us. Of course, a joke. So where did the data check go? It went to Facebook, Amazon, Google, these mega tech companies that, again, pay little to no taxes. And we're none the wiser. It was a fair trade for a little while, because we were getting these free, fantastic services. Uh, But now it's reached this. Uh, much more pervasive point where we're getting bombarded with ads. Our information is getting sold and resold. And in many cases, our information is worth thousands of dollars and we're seeing none of it. So what I'm saying is that our data should be ours. It should be our property. If a tech company decides to do something with it, they need to let us know what they're doing and share the value and let us unplug if we choose to do so.
0: What makes you different than Senator Warren in terms of having that regulatory emphasis?
1: Well, number one, Senator Warren uh, does not seem to think that automation and the fourth industrial revolution uh, uh, represent a problem. Um, She believes that bad trade deals were the primary driver of the lost 4 million manufacturing jobs, uh, and that if we change the rules, then the economy will uh, reformat itself in positive ways. I think we're going through the greatest transformation in the history of our country, that changing the rules will not change the... A reality on the ground for many Americans that we're already seeing and experiencing and that we need to actually rewrite the rules of our economy from the Top down uh, to become a trickle-up economy from our people our families and our communities up And the most effective way to do this is to make us all participants and shareholders in the progress of the 21st century uh, But you know, I'm a big fan of Senator Warren's and you know, I, I think she's uh, fighting for a better version uh, and vision of our country
0: Where are you on trade? Do you support adding more tariffs in the relationship with China or not?
1: Well, I think tariffs are naturally very zero-sum, and they also end up uh, generating additional barriers because if you impose a tariff on China, China imposes a tariff on us. And then who suffers? Producers in Iowa and other parts of the Midwest. Uh, So the reality is many Americans feel like trade deals have not been uh, good for them and their communities, and they are right. Uh, and so if we're going to pursue a trade deal, we have to share the gains in very real and concrete ways with the Americans that are going to be on the losing end. If we can't figure out an effective way to do that, uh, then we need to rethink some of the deals we're making.
0: Let's stick with foreign policy for a second. You have raised $10 million, as I said, in the third quarter. You went from being a, a person nobody knew six months ago to yep. someone who's been on every debate stage. My wife stage. knew me. <laughs> I'm not going to dive into that one. Leave that alone. I'm sure she knows you very well. But (laughs) you could be, in a populist age, in in an unorthodox age, a serious contender for the nomination in just a few months. That's right. a serious contender for the presidency.
1: Yes, all true. So let's
0: take it seriously. You're going to have some choices to make if you're sitting at that desk, the Resolute desk. Hong Kong protests. Do you support the protesters in Hong Kong?
1: I think we have to... um reckon with what China sees as its top priorities, which right now we're seeing play out in front of us. Number one is maintaining robust economic growth. And number two is maintaining social order. And those two things are now butting heads in various ways. If we want to both manage the relationship and serve our own values, we have to find a combination of carrots and sticks that help bring the Chinese to the table to address not just uh, what's going on in Hong Kong, but our own intellectual property rights, uh, the trade issues that we have, climate change, North Korea, artificial intelligence. Uh, It is one of the most important relationships that may well define the 21st century, and it's something that I'm excited to get to work on. Do you
0: stand in solidarity with the protesters or not in Hong Kong?
1: I think most Americans, uh, who and I'm on the record saying that I think that the Chinese response to, um, to people who are standing with uh, the Hong Kong people, uh, it's off base. Uh, I think most Americans are deeply sympathetic to the Democratic protests in, in Hong Kong. And are you? Too. Yeah, of course.
0: Do you stand in solidarity with them?
1: I, I think that uh, most Americans uh, stand in solidarity with the, the people of Hong Kong, but I, I, I don't think that... Um, right now, the issue that catalyzed the protests was this extradition law, which has already been pulled back, and so now the protests are evolving into a very different thing.
0: What do you make of the NBA's handling of China?
1: Now, I, I applaud the NBA for saying to its, uh, saying very clearly that they would not uh, discipline Daryl Morey or any of the employees for exercising their free speech rights. Um, I think that was the appropriate stance. I think it's appropriate for a company to stand up for its own values and then pay something of an economic price. You know, it's easy to stand up for your values if there's no price involved. Um, and so I, I applaud the NBA for uh, for not bending to Chinese demands when it came to disciplining Daryl Morey. Do you think LeBron James bent to Chinese demands? <laughs> I, I think that... Uh, I think that LeBron's comments um, were probably something that he could have worded a a little bit differently. I think the the next day he came out and said as much.
0: Syria. The decision has been made by President Trump to remove U.S. troops. As president, would you send in more troops to help the Kurds?
1: The hard part is you can't reverse the reality on the ground. Abruptly pulling troops out of Syria has resulted in a very, very tough uh, picture for our Kurdish allies. But after you have a new administration, it's not necessarily the case that you can reverse the damage. You could send troops
0: in as president.
1: I would want to figure out what the best course forward was. Um, One thing I will say is I've signed a pledge to end the forever wars. I do not think it's appropriate for American troops to be stationed uh... in foreign theaters indefinitely that's not the will of the american people and that's not the way the constitution uh... intended that sort of decision to be made what do you see is the threat or not threat with the non-threat with iran i think yet another mistake on the part of this administration was pulling out of the multilateral uh... treaty with uh, iran and i would try and re-enter it and extend the timeline so that they made sense but uh... to me the Trump administration made a mistake by pulling out of that agreement.
0: What would your approach be to the US relationship with Israel?
1: We've had a very special historic relationship with Israel that I think transcends any individual administrations and and that's the way I would continue.
0: Tulsi Gabbard's been also a non-interventionist on the stage. I'm not sure how close you are to her ideologically or not on that issue. But what do you make of the idea of she may run as a third party candidate?
1: She's on the record saying she would not run as a third-party candidate, and I would just take her at her word. Do you see yourself as a
0: non-interventionist? You said you want to end endless wars.
1: I want to end endless wars, but I also want to let the world know that America's commitment is ironclad, and that if we committed to, for example, uh, defending another country, then they should expect that we are 100% behind that commitment. Are you for the Green New Deal? I love the vision and spirit of the Green New Deal. And I'm on the record saying that we need to head in that direction as quickly as possible. Uh, The only thing I would differ uh, from on the Green New Deal is really the timeline, which I think is a little bit brief. Uh, But other than that, it was 100% spot on in the direction we need to go.
0: What about the possible taxes included in that?
1: Well, we have to have a big picture perspective. uh, And this is really the tension that we have to get beyond where if you say, hey, we need to make progress on climate change, some Americans just think higher prices, fewer jobs, like economic uh, setbacks. But the reality is there's a massive set of opportunities because we spent hundreds of billions of dollars subsidizing the fossil fuel industries from their inception to today. And if we take that same level of energy and put it towards renewable forms of energy, updating our infrastructure, making progress on climate change, we can actually create tens, hundreds of thousands of new jobs, I was just in, this is going to sound so politician-y, but I was just in New Hampshire, and uh, I was with an entrepreneur who helped create almost 300 solar panel installation jobs, and those jobs are going to be local, they're going to be very hard to automate, uh, they're going to help move us in the right direction. So the challenge is changing our economic measurements to correspond to how green our economy is, and the... The easiest way to do that is actually make sustainability part of our economic measurements. Right now we're chasing GDP off a cliff even as our life expectancy is diminishing and GDP has less and less correlation to how we're doing. So we should modernize GDP to include uh, clean air and clean water and how sustainable our infrastructure is, mental health and freedom from substance abuse, childhood success rates, our own health and life expectancy, and then redefine economic progress so that we can see that making us greener actually is moving us ahead.
0: You have a lot of positions, you've thought out a lot of your policies, but at the end of the day, there's only one winner of the Democratic nomination. You have to get through this crowd ahead of you. You are rising in different uh, respects. Pete Buttigieg is making a big generational case. You're a young man, a young candidate. Do you feel like you can steal some of that generational uh, appeal in the coming months ahead of Iowa and New Hampshire?
1: I think Americans sense that I have a modern, uh, up-to-date approach to solve some of the problems of this era. Like it or not, the 21st century economy is fundamentally different than the economy that's come before, and we need to have our government catch up to the real challenges as quickly as possible. I do think that my experience with technology does set me apart from some of the other candidates, uh, and this is the kind of expertise we're going to need to modernize our government.
0: Because he comes from the center of the country, Indiana, he's speaking to the same type of voter you're trying to make a pitch to in many respects. What makes you different than him? Just just the experience, being more of an outsider, and a non-elected official? Uh, I Someone think, was trying to pick between Judge and Yang. What do you say to
1: them? Um, uh, I think they could dig into our platforms and get a sense of our visions for the country. Uh, I will say that everyone can see what my vision is because I have over 160 policies very clearly laid out on my website. Um, most fundamentally that I want to make our economy work for us by having a dividend of $1,000 a month for every American from 18 until the day we die. Um, and that vision, I believe, sets me apart not just from Pete, but from every other candidate. Does Vice President
0: Biden go far enough with his policy proposals to be a successful Democratic nominee in
1: 2020? I think he's the front runner in most polls. So. But as you've <laughs> you know, said before, is, you think uh, it's mostly
0: because he's seen as the, the best candidate to beat President Trump. I'm asking, do you think he goes
1: far enough on policy? Oh, if you listen to Joe, um, I don't think he's really leading on policy. I think he's leading on um, one, his own bio and his set of experience, um, and a restoration of the Obama Biden administration. So I just don't think policy is like the, the main uh, message that you hear from, from Joe when he speaks.
0: We got a question from uh, Twitter here. Bloomberg reported today that Judge's campaign has received staffer recommendations from Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg. Do you approve of that?
1: Well, I was joking when someone asked me, um, hey, would you accept that? I was like, well, I don't know Mark, so it would be kind of odd. <laughs> he said an email being like, hey, hire this person. Um, to me, if someone like Mark Zuckerberg recommends a staffer to you, then you just assume that you should take a look at that person, because they're probably very smart and good at their job and have uh, very relevant expertise so to me it would, it would have been surprising if pete didn't uh take a look at those, those staffers or potential staffers
0: have tech leaders or private industry leaders recommended staffers for your campaign
1: that's a good question i don't remember them specifically doing so but i do have a lot of techies that have uh endorsed me including elon musk uh, sam altman alexis Ohanian, jack dorsey's made a donation um, so there are a lot of techies that have supported my campaign because they, they know. If you go to a techie and say, hey, are we automating away the jobs? Um, and you're in private, they'll be like, oh, yeah, we are. Um, and then you say, how do you feel about it? They'll say, not very good. Uh, and then say, would you like to do something about it? Then some of them say, yeah, I would. Because they're parents, they're Americans, uh, you know, they're human beings, first and foremost. Uh, And so if someone who supported my campaign said they had someone smart who wanted to work on the campaign, of course I'd take a look. At a
0: meeting before this event, you said to a group of reporters that you'd be willing to stock your cabinet with leaders from the Silicon Valley sector, the tech sector.
1: I I said not the cabinet. I said uh, the administration with people who wanted to solve the problems.
0: So why should you call normal people, as you say in your book, your phrase? uh, Why should they trust an administration that's bringing on all these tech leaders, the people they blame for some of their automation woes. Why should they trust that administration?
1: Well, the administration, the Yang administration will be laser focused on trying to solve the problems of this era. And to the extent that there are people who want to help solve those problems, uh, that to me is an intrinsically good thing. And if some of those people come from the very industry that is changing our way of life, that's also not a bad thing because they'll have the sharpest perspective on what we need to do to actually improve the lives and lots of the American people.
0: I want to come back to a comment you made about Senator Warren. You said she's mistaken in her view that trade is the problem here, not automation.
1: By do the mean, numbers, I do believe she's mistaken, yes. Would
0: the Democratic Party be making a mistake by trying to counter President Trump on trade rather than put
1: focusing on automation or other issues in 2020? Uh, I believe they would. Um, and so if you look back to 2016, Donald Trump said that it's immigrants to blame. And then now Democrats are saying, um, I guess it's trade to blame. The studies I've seen have said very clearly that 70 to 85% of the job loss that we've experienced in manufacturing has been due to automation and technology and machines and not immigrants or trade. And so if you ignore that elephant in the room, I think you are making a grave mistake, particularly as what happened to those manufacturing jobs is now happening to the retail jobs as 30% of stores and malls close to the call center jobs as those jobs get taken by software, to the fast food jobs as self-serve kiosks or in every McDonald's by 2021, to the truck driving jobs when eventually AI can drive a truck better than a human driver. If we're stuck chasing immigrants or trade deals while artificial intelligence is about to leave the lab, we are sunk. And so if Democrats believe that uh, it's not technology, I would urge them, please just look at the numbers, look at the data. Uh, and decide for yourself based on that.
0: Senator Warren is out front talking about taxes. Why do you sometimes seem to avoid talking about taxes? You always talk about the freedom dividend. Is it just a natural aversion politically to having tax increases being at the front of your discussion and your, your, your argument?
1: I'm all for trying to rebalance the economy, which will, inc- of course, include um, higher taxes on, I mean, the, on the companies and institutions and individuals that are benefiting the most from the inequities in, in our economy. Uh, what should no. the highest individual rate be? Well, the argument I make to folks is that Jeff Bezos probably owns this building. He, does, he doesn't own this
0: building. In disclosure, he does own the Washington Post. It's a personal property.
1: Oh,
0: <laughs> Some people may so, not know.
1: Yeah, no. yeah, we're letting them know. We're letting them know. So Jeff Bezos is worth $120 billion post-divorce. <laughs> Let's say I ratchet the personal income tax rate all the way up to 80%. How much of that $120 billion are we going to get from Jeff? Next to nothing, because Jeff is not dumb enough to pay himself $10 billion a year and then let us tax 80% of it. He probably pays himself some nominal rate, while the vast majority of his wealth is in Amazon stock. So the way we get that, uh, get that balanced is we actually take a toll on Amazon sales. Uh, And then that will channel hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars into the hands of the American public. Or you could tax assets or you could tax capital gains. I'm all for for raising capital gains tax. You should not be privileging capital gains relative to labor. If anything, you should be going the other way around. But at a minimum, you'd have them be the same, and that's part of the plan.
0: Beyond the freedom dividend, I, I want to come back to this truck story you often tell that self-driving trucks could be the ruin of this economy, a symbol of automation? Well, it would be
1: great for GDP. It's just going to be terrible for human beings. So, you
0: and know, and you seem open to regulation, Mr. Yang. So why not just limit self-driving trucks? Why not put a regulation saying that's not allowed?
1: I'm open to, in some instances, forestalling automation uh, if it's necessary. But we have to be realistic. If we were to say, hey, guess what? Every uh, truck must be driven by a human. Are we going to do the same thing for all of the retail and fast food establishments, all of the other parts of the economy that are getting transformed? And if you believe that $168 billion in savings is the result of automating truck driving, and we're not talking just about money. We're talking about uh, fuel efficiencies because they'll they'll take less fuel and and they'll be able to drive 24-7. You're talking about saved lives because right now, accidents with truckers. Uh, take about 4,000 lives a year. So if you were willing to say to all of this we're going to stop progress dead um, just in this one industry, that to me is not a long-term recipe for success in this country.
0: We have a minute left. Let's say you don't win the nomination. You have said early on in this interview you would support the Democratic nominee. Would you be open to serving on the Democratic ticket?
1: Of course. Uh, I'm not someone who's had some crazy native desire to be president of the United States since I was a kid, because I'm not insane. <laughs> You know, uh, like, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a parent, I'm a patriot, I just want to help solve the problems of this era, I believe I can do that best as president, but if that's in some other capacity, um, I'll be there.
0: Who on that debate stage is closest to you in terms of your view of the world? Who who is closest to you
1: in that sense? You know, it's funny you ask that. I mean, you'd have to sort of like put us all together in some kind of like Franken candidate. Uh, No, you must, (laughs) there must be someone in spirit
0: who's perhaps closest to you.
1: Uh, I will say the only person who's taken me aside and said that we need to really worry about the fourth industrial revolution because it uh, could potentially tear our country apart is Joe Biden. Joe Biden pulled you aside. That's an intriguing... Would you serve on a Biden ticket? You said you were open to anything? I, I'm, I'm definitely open to working with Joe. We've actually talked about it.
0: So that's Andrew Yang <laughs> joining us for Post Live. Thank you. And remember, we have Beto O'Rourke. Beto, Beto O'Rourke's going to come on Wednesday at 9 a.m. for the Post Live. The former Texas congressman will join us. He will be here for another hour-long conversation, so we hope to see you online at 9 a.m. for Congressman O'Rourke. But for now... Andrew Yang, thank you so much for being here, and thank you all for joining us for an enlightening conversation. Thank you. appreciate it. Thank Thank you. This Washington Post
1: Live podcast is sponsored by Bank of America. What would you like the power to do?